welcome to Red Book Club. Today we'll be covering A Great Love by Alexandra Kollontai. I wanted to add in a quick content warning to let you know that in this broad discussion we do touch upon themes such as abuse and rape. I'll pass you over now to Jess for some introductions. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to Red Book Club. Today we are discussing A Great Love by Alexandra Kollontai. This is a really important work for us and I think we'll start off by introducing ourselves and what has been your favorite pastime since you've been in isolation? (laughs) I guess since I came up with the question, I'll start. Okay, so I'm Jess, they, them pronouns, and my favorite pastime so far since I have been in isolation is talking about all the books I'm going to read and then not having the energy to do them. Very relatable. Uh, This is Connor, he, him pronouns. We've been in lockdown for about a week now here in the UK, and I did pretty much the same thing as Jess, but as well as that, I've been kind of learning to noodle around on some synthesizers again, which has been nice. Hey, this is Alex, they, them pronouns. Unfortunately, I haven't had much quote-unquote free time while in lockdown because I'm still doing grad school. They just moved everything online and they're like, hey, you don't have to go to physical places. Here's more work. (laughs) So that's been my life. (laughs) My name is Adriana, uh, she, her pronouns. I've been sick for the last two weeks, so I've been self-isolating. And yeah, sickness doesn't give me much, anything relevant to tell about myself. I am Andrew, he, him pronouns, and I have been passing my days by starting drinking around noon and watching Disney movies. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Kaylin, she, her pronouns. I don't know, I can't talk. I've been working a lot, but I've also been trying to read and trying to play keyboards, but mostly just scrolling through my phone and getting angry. Hey, uh, I'm Karichi, he, him pronouns. I actually have been mostly working out and bicycling outside, like doing groceries for my family and for my partner, which is super great, getting to work out and getting to go out during these times. I'm Talia, she, her. My favorite thing is reading a fuck ton. I can't really go outside because it's spring right now and the aller- <laughs> my allergies are insane so then i start to think i have covid uh it's happening again i went outside yesterday i made a big mistake and now i'm <laughs> having allergies again i should really start playing piano i should practice that thanks for reminding me kaylin no problem <laughs> I feel like everybody's kind of in the same boat here. (laughs) We're all like, yay, time, but... So this is a weird spot in humanity, and I'm excited to navigate it. (laughs) So, A Great Love, I really was excited to read this book, and I think that it kind of holds a special place in a lot of hearts that have read it, especially for non-men, especially Marxist non-men activists, revolutionaries who have dated men. Not necessarily in that specific context, but I know that I felt like I was reading my story reading it. So Colin Tai, she's a little bit of a different Marxist theorist in that some of her 
some of the way that she delivers her theory is through fiction. She demonstrates why her theory is the way that it is and how that actually plays out socially um, and in real time. And this book is an example of that. So it's mostly known as supposed to have been written about Lenin and his alleged mistress, Inessa Armand. So there's no actual evidence to show one way or another whether or not they were lovers or very close friends. But this story, in the introduction here for the translation done by Kathy Porter, she does talk about several instances in which it appears that Kalantai is writing this story not only about Inessa and Lennon, but also about her and her previous partner and about basically every woman revolutionary at the time and how they were experiencing this this change socially, but still this residual difference between what was happening between men and women. So uh, this takes place before the October Revolution, and it takes place in France with some exiled Russian revolutionaries, which does kind of add to the assumption that maybe this was Lenin and Armand, because that does sound exactly like their story. So without further ado, I guess we should go ahead and jump on in to chapter one. So Kalantai starts off with chapter one by talking about how this is something that happened a long time ago and how they are living in a place or in in a russia that has a is basically post-revolution now um but this is the story of what had happened before and she starts talking about a memory she has she's being called away to go visit her partner senya and she starts remembering from several years ago the history of their relationship I uh I loved this the, the, like just, just the way she quickly like wraps up how she's going to continue the framing of their relationship going forward like in this first section how like she immediately leads off with how Natasha feels like totally belittled and like demeaned by him and that he only saw her as as something that was useful to his revolution and never saw the revolutionary potential in the power of what she was doing and I thought that was like really you know, a really powerful way to start off just setting the framing out from the start and then continuing from there so you understand like the paradigm they're working in i really love the juxtaposition of her talking about how great she loved him and how passionate they were and then at the end it was she ends the paragraph with she would grow beside herself with rage recalling bitterly how her work for the party had suffered in the years she'd been with them she thought of all the time she delegated important matters to other people so as to be free for him. All the time she'd missed crucial meetings. All the time she'd been late. And, oh, fuck. Sad a mood. <laughs> like Jess, I had also been in a long-term relationship with someone who said they were Marxist-Leninist and my work definitely suffered with my organizing because of this person and I at the beginning I had definitely placed his importance over the party work and near the end it had switched and that's when he as we'll talk about later like this I resonate with this book a lot so there's this quote pretty close to the beginning um, that illustrates that she's already having these these 
conflicting feelings about Senya. So there's a conversation between them. Senya says, why'd you have to rush off this hour of the morning? Look, there's no earthly reason why you should leave now when there's an evening train you can catch. Won't you stay with me until then? And then she says, you know quite well why I'm hurrying. If I leave this evening, I shall miss the opening session of our party congress. And he says, oh, come on now. It won't be such a tragedy if you're a little late. They'll manage very nicely without you, you know. And then she says in the paragraph later, her words or his words had stung her and he thought or and she thought of all the other occasions when he'd deferred so despairingly to her work for the party, their party. She wondered if he'd ever understand that it was only out of a sense of total commitment to her political work that she derived the strength to endure their separation for good. So she caught the train <laughs> and she left. And so I feel like most of this text is is a lot of that happening. And it's so very upsetting in this story because she talks about how great, how great their love was and how much they meant to each other. But I think it's also important to mention, because we are covering a story here, that Senya was married and their relationship was a secret. And she says in a few ways that she says, but N Natasha knew all too well he had been spoilt by the love and rivalry of two women, and now he thought that he could always get his own way. At any other time, the spontaneous way he had of changing plans, this desire to be with her a little longer, if only for one more hour, would have filled her with joy. But on that cold, wet morning of, her, of their final parting, she was amazed that he could be so capricious and so demanding. But that seems to be a pretty underlying factor in Senya's behavior with Natasha. It seems like he's just consistently never valuing her time in the way that she values his. Not only the time that she spends with him, but the, the time she spends away from him. It's never valuable in the way that she views it or the party views it. So I think uh, the whole description of the book, I have this uh, feeling that it reflects how patriarchy has been working even until our time in which women are the caretakers, without her, the relationship would fall apart. The only moment he really rushes to to save the relationship is doing something that, at the end, when he doesn't even count on what she would like. So, like, men are used to this, having their time and their space, and is what is important, and women have to share. It's, it reminds me also to Virginia Woolf, asking to for uh, female writers to have their a room for themselves because the moment they share it to with men they take it from them they they do not share usually they're not used to it they don't support and in this way she is how her um, work is affected until until the end and yeah i would call the book more the fall of a great love <laughs> because it's more for me, like from the beginning and the passion until the indifference that is caused by, by the disappearance of love on her side and therefore the disappearance of the relationship. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point and something I've been thinking a lot about is like how women and non-men need their space of their own, like to uh, male exclusionary spaces so, so we can really focus. But I can totally relate to a lot of the feelings that she kind of lays out you see natasha is just kind of enamored with him and 
his work and how much she reveres his work and his brilliance, but you don't see the same sort of respect returned towards her and her work. And instead she's constantly asked to sacrifice for this relationship that is a secretive relationship. So even if it's not necessarily the same exact scenario, I definitely relate to that feeling and that experience. I would argue that this was never a great love. It was always her sacrificing and not getting the same amount of respect that she deserved. Later on in the book, we can get to it, but uh, she was just an object for him. She was just around for him. And he knew that whenever he would message her, message, like telegram her and say, hey, meet me there. She would drop everything and go like he... Like, if she had done that for him, that would uh, never happen. I don't think this was a great love whatsoever. Like, it was just a, just a convenience for him. I agree. And I think that she actually starts, I think that's kind of what this book is about, is her recognizing that her utility to him was never the same as his utility to her. She talks about how she's, I think that's probably the next chapter, she talks about how she's fallen in love with him and what it was about him that made her fall in love. And I think that that part, I think, is probably the part that I, I identified with the most was the beginning of their relationship, um, at least as far as like my most recent experience, like with an actual Marxist-Leninist. But overwhelmingly, I really appreciated what, um, what was said just a, a minute ago about how there seems to be a dynamic of where women are caretakers, even in a, you know, a partner setting. And Alexandra absolutely talks about that in this book, where Natasha, she views herself as a caretaker for him, um, that he's basically like a child, and that he doesn't really understand. And she does actually try to get him to, to come, like wh what Talia was just saying, that you know, if, if she had ever asked him to show up, that he wouldn't. And he didn't. And in fact, that's what she was talking about, is that he decided to spend just a little bit more time with his wife and just decided not to reply to the telegrams or whatever. But that's, that is effectively what happened. She asked him to show and he never did. He never was going to. And every time that he asked her to show up, she was there and she was ready to defend him and talk him down from whatever childish situation he was in at the time. And it's unfortunate because Talia is 100% right. That's not a great love. That's a caretaker relationship. And she was overwhelmingly just an object of like a toy for him. And really, we'll, we'll see later on in the text how she immediately talks about how he's devaluing her work. But she goes out of her way to talk about how great his work is. And he goes out of his way to talk about how important he is to the party when he has already said, they'll get on just fine without you. They'll be just fine. And we run into that a few times in this text. So, yeah, I think that was really important to say, like, the caretaker position was exactly the one she was in. Just before we go any further, kind of put out, like, a spoiler alert, because this book is, like, 100 years old, but we're going to be, I imagine, discussing points of the plot. So, yeah, we're going to ruin it for you, but it's going to be good. <laughs> So what's happening in the first chapter is basically setting the scene and the historical context of the story a little bit. And 
showing many examples of the way Natasha's underappreciated. A lot of what it is doing is also just emphasizing how important the relationship is to her. And she, I mean, it says that she experiences the end of the relationship with incredulity, similar to, I think it's described as similar to like the disbelief that you have when a loved one dies and you can't really accept the fact that somebody's dead. That's like how cut up she is at the start of the book when she believes that her and Semyon or Senya yeah, are broken up seemingly forever because he's gone back to be with his wife, Anuta. thing just breaks my heart. Hearing her devalued consistently. Also because I've been there, but <laughs> it just hurts. I thought it was going to be easier the second time around, but it wasn't. Um, I was just going to say, along with this whole story, we kind of talked about it before starting to record, but it's super applicable and relatable to a lot of people's experiences, individuals' experiences. And we kind of talked about this on The Tolerant Left a little bit, for those of you who listened, but basically the devaluation of non-men and women and our work we do is a constant theme in living in a patriarchal society. And it's something that is so internalized. And I think that really comes through in the way that Colin Tai writes. I agree, definitely. Colin Tai really, really makes a point to express not just that this dynamic is happening, but how it feels to be in it, how it feels to be devalued, how it feels to be somebody who cares so deeply about the party and have your partner not even think that your work matters and like that is like the deepest kind of hurt when someone who you love and appreciate and value and respect doesn't understand or value or respect your contribution and there's it, it appears there's really nothing that that natasha could have done to have earned that respect um according to the party she had the same level of respect as senya but Senya didn't res- didn't understand that, and he didn't see it, and he devalued her position in the party consistently. So, and and we see later on that the party absolutely did want her there, and they wanted her to be a part of it. They valued her work; they considered her essential. But Senya didn't. Senya thought they were just fine without her. That anybody else could could just go ahead and fill in for her. That that she wasn't vital at all. And it's really shitty because that that has to be like the deepest form of betrayal or of disappointment when you care so deeply about someone. I think in this sense, there's also another point that would be interesting to talk about. I think how during the previous time of the revolution well organizing, uh, female comrades had to convince the males that also uh, women were important for the revolution that without them there was no revolution and i think somehow even nowadays we all know comrades who cannot accept that female are another uh, another part of the revolution as important as they are i totally agree with that and just to plug that episode again from the tolerant left because i totally that episode resonated so much with me what was it called can you not i think so i definitely recommend people listen to that episode but to your point i don't think this is framed in the context of a of a romantic relationship but i feel the same dynamic with men that i organize with men that i work with where my work 
like there's nothing I can do to prove my worth is equal to theirs. Um, and my work is constantly devalued. My voice is constantly erased. And not only are we as women and we as non-men are expected to work and have a job and contribute to society, but we're also expected to manage the emotions of men around us, whether that's in our romantic relationships or in our work. So I totally agree with you. I think even Talia had just mentioned saying something the other day in organizing setting and suggesting something. And then like, not long later, a guy suggested it and everyone was like, oh, hey, yeah, great idea. The story of my life. <laughs> it's the absolute yeah. story of my life. And then I just think about my my relationship with a person who said they were ML, like, I studied and researched for that Stalin was a mensch episode for four months. And they knew like how important this episode was to me and how nervous I was and like all the pressure that was on me. And then like the week before I recorded it, he goes, I don't know why you're so nervous. It's not like anybody's going to listen to it anyway. And that was like, that was like a knife. In my heart, my heart like fucking broke at that moment. But like just reading about <laughs> what she like him saying that stuff to her in the book, it's like, oh, I know the pain. I know the sadness. I know like just knowing like I have sacrificed so much for you. And this is how you treat me. I don't understand. Alex, the whole book raised my blood pressure too. <laughs> the whole damn thing. I was in tears. It was so stressful. And it was really upsetting that just like, you know, how we talked about in the beginning of Caliban and the Witch, how I almost felt like I wasn't reading it because I was reading something I already knew. I just inhaled this text because of that. I, I felt like I had already known the story before. I feel like I, I can't be the only one who's who's in that position because there's just too much about this for it to be uncommon. Like we, this is just a dynamic that that non-men face all the time. So um, we probably should move into chapter two. This is gonna be a four-hour-long episode. <laughs> yes, I I actually think we might end up doing two episodes about this, which I think would be probably most logical okay so chapter two pretty sure that's we kind of already talked about it she's just talking about like how she should be going to see senya her friends are wondering like about her relationship and she's basically just giving excuses and um that's kind of like at least what like i kind of accepted the chapter as was her rationalizing to her friends what she was doing with her life. And of course, they don't know about Senya. Of course, they couldn't know about Senya because Senya was an important party member who wasn't supposed to be having an affair. So um, she basically had to have a life that they weren't really aware of. And I can also identify strongly to this one <laughs> because it's really hard, like having to justify or lie to your friends or, you know, 
justifying to your friends always ends up really just being justifying to yourself. I feel like that's kind of what she's talking about doing right there, where she's like, yeah, I've always lived a solitary life, but, you know, it's because of this. And she doesn't, it, I never got the impression that she really believed the excuses she gave to her friends. And I think she felt obligated the entire time because her friends are like, but you're such a good worker. Can't you just work? Where are you going? <laughs> and she's, she knows they're right. Yeah, that's frustrating. Yeah. Um, some of the overarching themes I got from this chapter were it was illustrating how Natasha met and fell for Semyon Semyonovich, who, if we say Senya or Semyon or Senechka, it's all the same person. And yeah, just what Jess was saying about how Natasha's friends are like really getting at her, being like, I don't understand how you can be a single woman and like how how can you live a full and happy life without a husband? You need to have a husband. And it also goes into the details of Anuta, who is Semyon's wife, about her relationship with Natasha. And she's echoing the same things that her friends have been saying to her already. And then she's unsure about whether Anuta maybe suspects something because she's telling her intimate details of her marriage with Semyon. And this kind of this image of uh, Semyon being an ideal husband is quite difficult for for Natasha to hear. It like she's she's not too comfortable with it, but she's so swept up in this excitement of her kind of budding friendship with this person who he's like a respected figure in the party. They knew each other by name, but they'd never met before. She's been writing articles in support of his ideas, this kind of thing. And um, there's a nice quote in there where she's saying she no longer wanted the crises, the traumas the struggles, the sufferings, and misunderstandings of love. She wanted friendship and understanding instead. She wanted the responsibility and commitment of political work, and she wanted to collaborate with people she trusted on something important. But then it immediately flips that on its head and says that's what she thought she wanted. But yeah, she she falls into this relationship instead. She even says that she believes sometimes that Anuta might be making it all up when she's talking about Senya. Mm. That's frustrating. I will say that that is also part of the reason why this story is equated to Lennon and Anessa. Because Anessa and Nadia, Lennon's wife, were definitely close. Like, there's no question, and there's no question over whether or not Lennon and her were close. And it almost sounds, um, based on the historical evidence we have, that she was very good friends with Nadia and may have also been having a relationship with Lennon. So, um, like, for the historical tie-ins, we do know that Lennon and Anessa Armand and Nadia spent a lot of time together as friends and as comrades, and they were all very close. I think Anuta's side is also relevant in this story because even though it's like a ghost during the whole book, being the wife of Senya plays an important role in explaining the behavior, uh, his behavior at my jump a little bit but it's related to this at the end of the book he uh, he says that that uh, natasha has the same some kind of the same behavior as anuta like going to indifference uh, so he realizes that uh, what he's doing somehow and anuta might be at the beginning of the book like saying that how she has such a good marriage in a way that we might see uh, women who cannot get out of their bad situation, painting it better or, than it really is. Yeah, I think you're 100% right there. And I mean, chapter on chapter, we're just going to get this 
buildup of the psychological profile of Semyon, and that guy is just a complete piece of shit. But not only to Natasha, you're right, he, he treats his wife really badly as well. Like Even in the next chapter, we'll see. I think we'll come to that in a second. But he's acting as if like her needs are really important. And then he just like leaves her, he ups and leaves her like straight away. And kind of like with a wave of his hand forgets what he was saying a second ago about what she needs is so important. Right. And he even, it even says that um, Anuta is pleading with him not to leave her and he does it anyway. I think that brings us into chapter three quite well. Well, he's a fuck boy. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> so, here in chapter three, he is talking to Anuta, Anuta, who is pleading with him to not leave. And then this is him talking about his position in the party. He says, I know I really should go. If I don't, they'll certainly find some way of exploiting the situation and knocking our resolution on the head and says, but then I don't see how I possibly can. She's running high fever. Anuta has rushed off her feet as it is in all conscience. And I could ju- couldn't just leave her there. So basically, he's like, I'm super important. I need to be all the places. The party can't deal without me. I know that Anuta and my daughter are sick, but I'm leaving. Because he would never have expected Natasha to do so. Yeah, well, in the same breath saying, like, oh, no, you can stay here. Don't worry. They'll get along just fine without you. Like, what an incredible piece of shit. And he's actually, like, in that same conversation asking, asking uh, Natasha to join him. He's like, hey, I'm leaving. You want to meet up? Yeah, it's it's stressful because it seems like he's constantly leaving one of them when the, he doesn't or when they don't want him to leave and devaluing the work that one of his partners are doing just to be with the other or to do what he thought was super important um, on his own accord. So he his work is always very, very important, and it's always more important for him to be with the other person instead of the person that needs him. It's just an emotionally manipulative fuckboy, and I hate him so much. <laughs> he treats both of these women like absolute dog shit. I'm not here for this. Pretty says that he pities her. Pities Anuta. And he treats her, like, he talks about her like she's basically just a dumb housewife. Like she's a asset of his i don't know it's it's frustrating because it's like oh well she's my silly wife but like she does wife things you're not my wife you're my plaything, and it's so very frustrating to read in this in this sense like he uh i'm not sure who phrased it like that but someone said like uh he lives one to go to the other one like but it's never never because of them it's what he feels like or because he's afraid and the end of the book, he delays because he's afraid and he doesn't want her uh, to call because he's afraid that his wife appears. He does it because he wants to or because of what he feels like doing, what it suits him the most, or because he's afraid of them. He never acts in order to please them because he loves them and wants to make them happy. Yeah. That's completely selfish. And he often uses these two women in different situations to justify his actions, even though the entire time he's acting very selfishly. That's not what a good Marxist-Leninist should be doing. It's not about your needs being satisfied immediately. You need to be treating everybody as comrades, and this person is not doing that. So yeah, in that sense, 
I think especially female comrades have to be aware that before being a communist, men are raised in a patriarchy. <laughs> so their behavior will be most likely first guided by what they have learned as children to socialize than what they have learned as adults and the ideology about society. I thought this part was interesting. Natasha's talking about how she fell in love with him. She says, now he'd forgotten what loneliness was. Every day was bright and happy now for Natasha had unlocked his heart. He needed her. His love for her was like nothing he'd ever experienced before, surpassing all limits of joy and pain. He'd been in love with her for a very, very long time without ever daring to hope that she might also love him. Falling in love with her had left him dizzy and helpless as a boy. It was like a calf love, and he was terribly jealous too. Jealous of the man she'd been close to before meeting him. The man who'd introduced them to each other at the party. He'd been overjoyed when they'd broken off their relationship. He had loved her for years, he said. Loved her so hopelessly, so tenderly. And I felt like that... Even in that context of this great love and how much he absolutely adored her, it was still, he was jealous. He's married. He was jealous of her having had a male friend. And it wasn't even somebody that she was dating. She was just close to. And I felt like that was a good, a good way to frame this because we read it and it sounds like this love. It sounds like this whirlwind love. But realistically, he was infatuated with her and he wanted to have her. It was like a possession he wanted. And of course, because she respected him and she adored him and she looked up to the work he did, um, she thought that was just the most amazing thing that he loved her. But it feels like from, her, from his perspective that he saw a shiny new plaything. And he wanted it so badly and didn't want anyone else to play with it. Whereas he was very comfortable with Natasha maintaining a secret relationship so that he could maintain his other relationship and expected her to not have any pains about that. And I feel like that is just so mean. So mean of him. Yeah, definitely. Uh, does anyone mind if I give a quick synopsis of the chapter or is that going do you think that'll be going a bit overboard as we like go through it Could do that. okay so in chapter three it's based around a political conference which has been planned for a long time and it's really important for both Semyon and Natasha and at the last minute or a few days before the event Semyon announces that he probably can't make it because of reasons related to his wife Anuta so when Natasha goes around the day before to kind of double check all their arrangements. He says, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to make it. You're going to have to come back around tomorrow to check with me. So she does that. And once again, he says it's impossible for him to go. And Natasha leaves kind of relieved that she's not going to be with him thinking, okay, if he's not going to be there, then I can just, I can focus fully on formulating an argument for the conference. I'm going to be able to work properly. And while she's waiting for the train at the station, Simeon runs up on the platform, announces that he's just sucked off his wife. He grabs her arm like as if it's his right just to do so, like with no, there's no conversation between them about this and boards the train with her. And then once they're on board, there's a lot of tension. She's, he's kind of eyeing her up the entire time. And they kind of get off the train, get back on. And once they get back on, he just like launches into this really emotional tirades about his wife. And he's, he's pretty much just treating her like his 
therapist at this point. He kind of confesses his love to her. And so once they, they reach the conference and Natasha is completely in her element, like this is what she lives for. And she's, she's smashing it. She's carrying out her duties really well. She's enjoying herself thoroughly with everyone, even people who she'd usually be arguing with ideologically. I think Colin Ty describes it as her being drunk with happiness. She's just completely in love with life at this moment. And so a few days go by, which is really exhausting work for her, as you can imagine it would be yeah, running a conference or like participating a lot in, in a political conference. So in one of the last days, she makes a mistake while transcribing the script of one of her political opponents. And everyone takes this to be a calculated attack against him because they're ideologically opposed. And so Semyon, who is a respected person in the party, rather than backing her up and saying, oh no, she's exhausted, she's been working really hard, she just made a mistake, I know this looks bad, but it's obviously not her intention, she's a really principled person, she wouldn't do that. What he does instead is saying, oh, it's not our faction of the party who's attacking this person, it's Natasha specifically, personally, who is attacking this person, and lets her take the heat for the entire thing, completely betrays her. And so when they go back to their room later on, she falls into his arms in tears, feeling completely betrayed and upset. And he tries to console her. He kind of acknowledges that she's upset because this is the day before they leave. He's saying, don't worry, we're going to see each other again soon. And she's just like, dude, what the fuck? I'm not upset because I'm not going to see you again. I'm upset because you just betrayed me in front of the entire party. Yeah. And then he gives her instructions for when they get back to the hometown. He says that she has to meet him in his home as usual. Otherwise his wife will become suspicious. So I don't know, it's just horrible to hear how he just treats her like shit the entire time and then completely ignores her needs, makes it about him, and then tries to force behavior upon her even once they get back from the conference to suit his own needs. This was the actually the hardest part for me when I read this because this is from the beginning the idea that they are not a couple, they're not partners, they're not... There is no support there. It's one individual and the other individual trying to reach him. But there is no... Somehow a partner is someone you count on. And from the beginning, she couldn't count on him to, to support her in a week when she was in a weak position, in a, in a place where she was hurt. So it's like seeing the prelude of the, of the tragedy. And also highlights how it's not an equal partnership and it's not an equal system of support. And the constant assumption that all of the all the weight is bared on the importance of one person is so clear here. And even the assumption about why she was upset is so telling. And I feel like it's so relatable. Like <laughs> she was thinking in a very like principled theoretical manner of uh, the debates, right? And that was what was part of the hurt as well. Oh, I don't know if you guys heard my cat. <laughs> um, and he assumed it had to do with their relationship and his presence in her life. And it's, it's so telling and it's also very relatable and it's very saddening because I feel like it's something that comes up a lot because um, our patriarchal ideas of the man being the center of everything, basically. It's also frustrating because the whole trip, she didn't expect to have to worry about him. And so, like, now that she's having some sort of frustration, not only just in the moment, but it's like, 
dude, you were never even supposed to be here. So like, <laughs> why do you think this is about you? <laughs> so it's very frustrating. Not even just there, not even just that he was a horrible partner and didn't back her up and didn't defend her, but that he completely wasn't even supposed to be there and like is just basically torturing her and making her work harder by being there. Not only does she have to take care of herself and take care of the party, but she also has to take care of this fucking man child as well. And man, is that fucking relatable. Yeah, in typical, you know, patriarchal form, he's projecting himself onto the center of her universe and like treating both of these women in his life as as property that he's just collecting and then like I said just projecting himself onto the center of their universe and and how making himself his the presumed center of their thought when she's really thinking in this really principled materialist manner it's just fucking disgusting it's in a way that he's supposed to understand because he's her comrade like they're in the same party they're supposed to be ideologically aligned that's why it's so frustrating because I'm sure as many of our other non-men in this group have experienced, it happens. Like people who you're supposed to be considered a comrade with, who should be at this level of principled materialist thought, still fall, f- fall incredibly short in being able to analyze the ways in which they interact with non-men and women in this uh, power dynamic. And it's very, very disheartening. I think it's important too to mention that this is different. Like non-men don't have this perspective of their comrades. We don't because we're not coming there looking for objects to possess. Like that's that's the big difference here. So like that's why I think we we all understand this like wait, what the fuck? What are you talking about? I'm trying to organize. Like I think we all understand that because we don't come to these spaces to play this game of possessing another person and so i think natasha never ever considered the fact that this organizing space was a relationship space and so yeah i i think like that's important to mention like i never am like i gotta join a party so i can find a partner or like oh this this conference is about my relationship yeah i mean sure maybe there are a few people like of course, I, I'm not going to say, like, don't date people you organize with or something, but, like, we just don't. That's not what we're doing there. <laughs> so, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I relate completely to this. and But also, like, I think uh, the mention about non-binary people and female relate in another way because they give they're used to give and they go into a relationship or any organization like we're going to give. Well, men usually go into a relationship or organizing in a commun- as a communist. And this is my parcel. This is where I work. Everything that isn't here belongs to me. And this is my, <laughs> I'm going to say this is my dick. <laughs> it's how it feels, isn't it? <laughs> it's exactly how it feels. And it's, it's frustrating, too, because we have to fight so hard to even be in those spaces in the first place. And once we get there, it's like, this isn't about a relationship. Are you insane? I tried so hard to get here. <laughs> and, like, I'm ready to work. So, yeah, it's, it's frustrating to be in that position. It's so upsetting that something that was written about 100 years ago 
is so 1000% relatable and still happening now. That is why this is exactly why I wanted to cover this book, because us as organizers, we need to talk about the fact that this is a real thing that happens and that this is the experience we have and has been happening for generations. Uh, yeah, like communism and the party is always in the forefront of my mind. No matter what I do, everything I do is for the party. If it so happens that we hit it off and that we get along, that's great because I think if the person that you're with is also an ML, a uh, principled ML, then it, it's amazing. But if they're not, you get shit like this. And then you see so many, I think it's basically, in, it's a big time in DSA where guys just join DSA because they want to hook up with people. And that's not what it fucking's about. And I, oh, I love that point that it's all about their dick. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> totally love that point. And totally agree with everything that's been said. Love all the truth bombs to Talia's point. <laughs> I think like to expand on that point a little bit, a lot of the time with my frustration with DSA, which Talia knows I've been, and a few of you know, I've been on a tirade about DSA lately. <laughs> But there are a lot of men that join for that reason or they feel like they and or they feel like they are building their own power or something within the organization. And it's just this constant uphill battle to like assert yourself like I'm here to organize. I'm here to work. I just want to get things done. Political opportunism. <laughs> it's bullshit and it's frustrating and I guess that's one thing out of the many things that I super appreciate about these spaces is that it's not about that for any of us chapter four yeah love Sweet. it Connor <laughs> oh boy <laughs> thanks for keeping us on track yeah <laughs> well, you can tell but we have some feelings about this we got some feelings <laughs> Oh, it's great. Like the combination of you all speaking and like me reading this book is just sending my blood pressure through the roof. I guess that's great. <laughs> I don't know if I'm, yeah, I was gonna say I don't know if it's a good thing, but I'm glad that some men are receiving it that way, if that makes sense. Like because it's easy for us to understand why this is a problem. And I genuinely don't even know if it penetrates the surface of understanding for a lot of men. Definitely didn't do with Senya. <laughs> Nope. I think it's it's really interesting, just like to connect back to like some of the stuff we, we learned from Federici and Caliban, is like we were talking about earlier, how, how men are trained to extract through patriarchy. Patriarchy it, like determines that like men are these powerful extractive things that go around and dominate the world around them. And he said like the women are in this system are trained to, you know, what can they give? What can they give? So it's like this strange like dichotomy of what people represent in the world and how like men have come to represent even in our personal relationships from the smallest to the broadest scale we, we've been taught to just extract 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 and in inversely like through the process of demonizing women and, and through them being like the primary victims of accumulation it's become all about what they can give 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 and it's just created these terrible imbalances in our relationships very good point because that's exactly what it feels like too and i feel like I feel like it also, um, there's this dynamic of we as non-men are so conditioned 
to do the opposite of that, to give, to give, 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 like I think Adriana had mentioned a little bit ago, where we just, we give and we expect to do that. And so when we're doing work with a party, when we're organizing, we come there expecting to bring something to the table. And I feel like it just, it always is frustrating when we recognize that our peers are not on the same page. And it, it kind of makes sense that in a patriarchal men would be determined to embody the traits of capitalism while women would be forced to embody those of socialism so that we can further demonize them and justify this extraction and patriarchy of wage. Yeah, definitely. And I think that especially because we are socially conditioned to like be perceived as this like irrational emotional beings, we come there ready to work and we are devalued consistently. And I think that that social dynamic of People considering our opinions as less useful, I don't know, as less holding less weight is just a way to perpetuate that system. So once we get into an organizing space, if we do bring up a problem, if we do have a qualm, it's just seen as sensitive women doing silly little things and causing rifts. And um, when really we came there to give, we're frustrated with the way we're giving, we're trying to bring something up. And it's just completely devalued and dismissed because silly, emotional women. And I, I say that specifically silly, emotional women because it's not like non-binary or any, any gender variance aside from the binary is respected in these spaces in, in general. So, yeah, um, I am non-binary, but I definitely almost always get treated as if I am some silly, frustrated frivolous woman who just has problems for no reason other than I'm a silly woman and it just serves to devalue our opinions even more. So we fight to get in those spaces and once we get there, we're just treated like children. So it's frustrating. But yeah, that's a little little bit of a tangent. And yes, that's my kiddo. <laughs> I, think it, I think you're totally right in that sense. And it's a very big point to see how we tackle this this the situation like we put in that context and you have uh, Natasha saying okay now that he's not here I can work you have a female non-binary forced to kind of act like men do in order to achieve our personal goals like the environment is forcing us to okay if I want to have my work done I have to not pay attention to my partner because otherwise it's not possible. So I have to behave like him. Uh, I feel like we've kind of touched on this. I'm not sure where, but I remember having conversations where we talked about how different genders are socialized to communicate differently and how in order to get our points across as non-men and women, we have to learn how to communicate in the manner that men often are socialized to communicate just to be heard. And it's very frustrating because they won't do the opposite often to hear us because there's a lot of tentative speech in the way that us non-men are taught to speak. And unless we're very direct and interrupting, we won't get our words heard or anything like that. So yeah, I definitely see that. And it's very frustrating. Like we're conditioned to say sorry whenever we have an opinion. <laughs> But yeah, I was just going to say it's super similar to colonialism and the colonized people being forced to speak in the language of their oppressor in order to be legitimized. 
like being forced to take on this patriarchal language just to be heard by men. Yep. No, that's exactly what we have to do. So I'll just start chapter four off with a couple of a couple of quotes from the text. Chapter three was talking about the origins of their relationships, chapters two and three. And chapters four is talking about how things have progressed through the years that have gone by. So the quote is, by now, several years later, many, many humiliations and insults had bothered her, had bruised her poor spirit. And to think it was her Sonechka who had done this to her, didn't he realize that those endless subtle wounds could break a person's heart, that a damaged heart becomes incapable of love, that her love for him was ebbing away. And then another quote. In the seven months in which they'd been apart, Natasha had been reviewing things, trying to get a clearer perspective on their relationship and coming gradually to accept that their happiness was now poisoned. Nothing remained of all those hours of happiness and the passion of their lovemaking. Nothing, that is, except grief and bitter memories. Senya, she now realized, had failed to hear what she was telling him. She'd stood before him, so vulnerable and eager to offer herself, to give herself to him, body and soul, and he had neither seen nor heard her. He'd merely possessed her, as a woman and then left her feeling even more alone than before. I'm outstretched to him. He knew nothing about her. He hadn't even wanted to know her. All she wanted was to stand between him and the world, relieve him of his worries, help him bear his cross. And so it goes on in chapter four to describe Senyu's relationship with his wife, Anuta, and some of the problems that she is experiencing. His life with Anuta, she had a really difficult time. She was regularly attempting suicides. The effect that this had on... Natasha's relationship with Senya is that because life was so difficult in their household, Natasha had to be like on an endless holiday, constantly providing laughter and a light, easy time for him. Like his difficult life was with his wife, his fun time was with Natasha. And it meant that she couldn't ever bring her problems to the table because she felt like it wasn't the right place to do so. Like she needed to be the, the light entertainment. And I feel like his abusive tendencies kind of come to the surface a bit more in this chapter. He shows himself to be a really jealous person. And he'd get angry or upset with Natasha if she would have a chat with a stranger, if he happened to be a man. She could be speaking to a guy at the station buying a ticket or something like that. And if she's laughing at something he says, he suddenly becomes all sullen and moody for like the rest of the day. He makes her doubt herself and feel guilty about herself. She has to tiptoe around him and... Usually she's quite a playful person, but she can't tease him for his jealousy. She has to like pick the right moments when, when she knows that it's safe to do so. And one of the most frustrating things that he does is, firstly, he doesn't listen to her at all. And when she tries to speak to him, he just completely ignores it or makes it about himself. But then after doing this, he complains to her that she never tells him anything. Oh, that shit's super relatable. <laughs> Oh, the walking on eggshells and having to censor your, like Alex says, censor yourself so much that you can't even be a real person. You have to, you can't even be who you really are. So how are they going to know you if uh, you can't express yourself and be yourself around that person? Man, fuck this dude. And fuck all the dudes who are like him. Like, if they really don't want you to ever speak up, I don't think they actually want to know you. I, I, that's the experience I'd had in, like, one of my longest-term relationships that I noticed that he didn't know shit about me. And so, like, I tried to make a point to share those things so that he could know. And, you know, I wasn't fully aware of the exact dynamic that was happening at the time, but 
I, I was trying to break through that barrier of him not knowing who the fuck was and me knowing everything about him. And he was not interested in it. Like that exercise was not something that was use like that was useful to him or that he thought was like worth his time. It was like, why are you telling me things? These are pointless things. And it's like, I, sorry, they're not pointless. I thought you wanted to know about me. And just like Natasha says there, it is so common to be able or to be in a position where you have to pick the right time to even bring up something playful, like to even joke or to like have your intimate moments when you have to censor your time and find the right points just to even be affectionate or just tease that's frustrating shit it had to have felt so isolating for her and thank you connor for saying that i really appreciate you keeping us on point so that we're not just talking about conceptual points in this story and we're actually relaying the story as well so thank you so much conceptual stuff's all super important though only with the story too <laughs> i think it's really interesting how he's like viewing her solely as an extension of himself and like Alex said, it's forcing her into this one-dimensional role where anytime she would try to step outside of this, this possessive view he has of her to like show herself as a full individualized human, it ca causes him great distress. Like He can't cope with her stepping out of his view of her as an extension of his being, as a possession of himself. Exactly. That's the perfect way to describe it. Uh, he wanted her to be an extension and a resource for him. And unless that resource presents itself in a very specific, palatable manner, he's not interested. And I feel like a lot of non-men and women are put into this position of having to exist as a one-dimensional being that offers care, a free therapist, you know, emotional care, things like this. Then it really limits the amount of truth and real connection that's there. And unfortunately, it happens a lot. I think even in what would be arguably healthy relationships too because we've been conditioned into this dynamic so much i think this still happens like i have a a former partner who i'm still very close with who like we both run into this barrier of feeling like we are obligated to not share and that we have to be like this one-dimensional character for each other even though that's not what we ever were and I think we've both asked questions like, why the hell am I doing this? This isn't the kind of relationship we have. This isn't who we are. But I feel like I'm just so conditioned to be this way that I fall into this behavior. And it's probably because this has been happening for centuries. So in chapter five, it's basically Natasha's reminiscences about what's described as the fragile, exquisite joy of former times. Some have spent close together, but with friends as well as with Senya. So it wasn't them two exclusively with each other. It was them two in a group with their comrades and with their friends, catching moments in secret. And she remembers the joy of renting a room after this summer and writing frenziedly and just really loving writing. And then Senya would also occasionally visit. But I think the main purpose of this chapter is just to illustrate some of the good times that they had together. I can say something about this. Yeah, go for it. When you've stopped an abusive relationship, the cycle can be you start to think about like the really nice times, like this kind of shit. And that's an abuser charms you. And this is probably his way of charming her. 
and I think this was, this is just an example of her trying to justify in her mind of maybe I should get back together with him because it was so nice. Like that one memory. Um, I, I think that's, that was the point. Thanks. That was a really good point. So in chapter six, it jumps forward in time a little bit and Semyon and Natasha are now living in separate separate towns. So Semyon is living with his wife and Yuta and their children and Natasha's working, uh, doing a lot of party work in a separate town. She's working with a guy called Venechka, who in some small ways kind of reminds her of Semyon. He's got the same kind of gold rimmed glasses. And I mean, he's very committed to doing party work. That's, I guess, up for debate about whether Semyon's the same. But basically, the party work is consuming all of Natasha's time during this period. So she is like really relishing the chance to get some, to spend some time with herself. She's renting her own room, which is obviously great for her to have some space. She says, "Tonight would be just tea and biscuits, a read of her magazine, and then bed. What heaven! And what a blissful, long forgotten feeling this was—the joy of just being alive." Mood. Yeah. Right. And so this chapter is showing Natasha at the happiest she's been for a long time. She's perfectly content with life. And just as she's kind of becoming happy and comfortable on her own again, and really thriving, she receives a telegram from Senechka, from Senya, and has like a really physically traumatic response to it, to, to its arrival. She's like trembling and feels like really weak in her legs. And I mean, it's just horrible, the physical effect that's just the thought of this person reaching out to her after seven or so months of complete silence has on her. It's like really difficult to read. And he asks her to meet in a town that's described, it's just named Gville, to develop a new idea with him. As I said, after seven months of not speaking at all. Another thing which he does, as Natasha like earns more money than him, it's kind of a common thing for him to assume that she's paying for everything. So he gets in touch and just says, you need to come and meet me in this place. I want to, I miss you so much. I need to, I need to meet you in this town and talk through this idea with you. I'm going to meet some professor there and you need to pay for all this stuff. So like she took this on the chin, like, okay, I normally pay for this stuff, which is already like, that's like a whole different thing as well. But the point was during this period of her life, Senka is not in her life at all. And he just like shows up, well, messages her after seven months and assumes that she can drop what she's doing. And spend a lot of money, which she maybe doesn't have. And as we see, she actually doesn't have all of a sudden just to uproot her life and go and do something on his whim. After her initial response, she like becomes really determined to meet him and she's instantly pulled back into her old life with him. And so she goes into work the next day and she's really upset because she can't find, she can't find a way to make money. And Vanechka, who is like, he, he knows her pretty well and he never sees her like, crying he'll see a bit annoyed or frustrated with working but he's never he doesn't know her from her life with Senya so it's really surprising to find her in this kind of state and so he asks her a few questions about it and he assumes that the problem is that she doesn't have money to bail someone out and she doesn't refute this assumption of his she lets him believe this because she doesn't want to say oh actually I need to go and meet this married party member somewhere so She's really doing something which is against her character, something which she'd probably consider quite unprincipled, because Vanechka has to go to some lengths to procure this money for her. He has to ask a, a wealthy person who's like associated with the party in some way and say, look, N Natasha really needs this money. It's for something important, like they're bailing out some comrades who've been arrested or something like that. 
but yeah, he he also says like I don't I don't need to know what's going on. Like I trust you. If you need money, like I know you need money because yeah, he just he just trusts her. So he eventually gets the money and gives it to Natasha, and she feels really bad for deceiving him. But yeah, that's that's what's happening in that chapter. I felt like what she'd said here illustrated well what she what was really happening between them. So she's talking about when he had messaged her to meet her in the town. And she says, what did he know of her life? He knew nothing of her new political responsibilities and the sacrifices she'd made for her work over the past seven months. He obviously couldn't care less. And yet now, as though nothing had changed, as though he'd forgotten that seven months ago he'd sent her packing, he had had the gall to say, come back, Natasha. She could visualize him so clearly and herself beside him. And she had the feeling she'd had or had so often before that he was somehow deaf and blind to her, that he only saw her in profile, never head on as a whole person as she really was. Yes, that was it. She was a silhouette whose contours he had drawn himself, for that was all he was interested in knowing or seeing of her. I think that is exactly how to describe how Senya viewed Natasha. Yeah, in this case, I can hold the book. He didn't expect a no. Because he never received one, and the moments that uh, Natasha tried to be to say no, that she was mostly out of rage because the bad feelings accumulated so much, he just played the card of feeling sorry for himself, of calling her for her compassion. So some way also hurting her because she feels hurt that she hurt him. <laughs> I don't know if I'm explaining myself. And yeah, he he always gets his way, and it was not gonna. He didn't expect it to be otherwise. And this, when he asked for her to come and to get the money because he wants to do his plans with being with the professor, which we see for the into the book. Yeah, just the incredible audacity of this guy who hasn't communicated in in seven months to just send a letter and, and using literally using the timing to back her into this moral corner where she feels like even if she doesn't like him, she feels obliged to go because like the timing literally doesn't allow a proper response to even give him a reason. No. So like just again, like even after not seeing this person for so long, still placing himself at the center of her universe and, and expecting that she comes up with this incredible amount of cash just to continue their relationship on a whim is just incredible. I just wanted to point something else that I missed uh, that, yeah, this relates to how we're seeing a wave in our time of female learning to say no, to put the uh, foot down and say, okay, no, this is unacceptable. And in that time, we can see our mothers or grandmothers like having it more difficult to say to our grandfathers and fathers. So, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's keep working on it. That's a great, great point. Um, it's a huge historical issue of women and non-men not learning or not being allowed to put up boundaries and it being very difficult for us to develop boundaries because we're often seen as the ones that have our resources, emotional resources extracted from without boundaries and we aren't expected to have boundaries. And so this is a very beautiful way to draw that parallel between the struggles of creating those boundaries and saying no and being like, actually, this doesn't work for me. And <laughs> this is very inconsiderate of you. 
saying no and not saying sorry is something I had to intentionally, consciously condition myself to stop doing. (laughs) So it's something that we're conditioned to do anyways. Saying no is something that we're not very good at. And it's something that men are not very good at receiving. So I think we should all just teamwork on that one. (laughs) Also because it hurt us to say no. If I say no and the other person feels, the other person is probably going to feel bad. I'm going to feel bad, so it's more difficult. But in this way, in this case, you see him, uh, you see Senia say no to Natasha in thousands of times in this heartbreaking time which she describes at the end of the book when she was sick. And he is like, I'm just going to my path. I said no, and that's it. Well, when she says no, it's like, okay, he said, now I have to say yes. Exactly. There's always consequences whenever we say no. I was just going to add, sometimes those consequences can be uh, life-threatening. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's really, that's really important to note. So, Chapter 7 is Natasha's train journey and arrival in Gville. And all the way there on the train journey, she's like so excited. She's imagining what, her, what their reunion is going to be like. She's like radiant. Everyone on the train is looking at her because she just looks so full of life. And then the meeting on the platform doesn't go at all how she expects. She kind of stumbles down the steps and like drops her stuff and is scrambling around to pick it up. Semyon picks up her umbrella and swiftly whisks her away, not wanting to be seen in public for fear that someone they know might see her. So this beautiful reunion that she's been imagining just doesn't at all go the way that she's been expecting it to. She says that he seems like a stranger. They're walking really quickly through the streets. He kind of rushes her off to this shabby hotel where they're going to be sharing a double room, which is like after they haven't met for seven months, just like without consulting her at all about this. And as they arrive in the room, he like begins to embrace her and kiss her. And she doesn't even have time to like remove her hat. And she's feeling really uncomfortable. These pins are like digging into her head and stuff like that. She's, she's largely unresponsive to him. And all the vitality that she felt on the journey over there is gone completely. And she's instantly feeling complete regret at arriving. It's just not how her expectations were at all. And there's a quote that says, There were tears in her eyes. For all he knew, there were tears of happiness. But she was past caring what he thought now. She knew that she was crying from the depths of her soul, crying for one more dream destroyed, one more irreparable insult, one more wound to her tired heart. And it goes on to talk about how Semyon was violent, crudely sexual with her, and she felt violated by him. She just doesn't want to engage with him at all, so she pretends that she's tired, and he's really pleased with himself and makes some quip about how he's like worn her out. And then after all this happens, Semyon receives news of his child Kokochka has fallen ill, and he instantly seems very vulnerable. And upon seeing this vulnerability, she just completely forgets all of this and falls for him again. I hated this so much. This section sucked. Uh, it reminded me so much of my past relationships. And like, this is like essentially, um, so like partner rape where she didn't want to do any of that stuff and but she felt like she had to uh just to save face 
and I, I, I feel this in the depths of my soul, like, uh, having to go through, go through the motions, even though you don't want to do it because you're scared of what the response will be, uh, from your partner. Because as a woman in a relationship, you're supposed to just give in and, uh, deal with it, grit your teeth and just, you know, let it happen. Because if you don't, who knows, you might get slapped or whatever. I, oh, this section like really, really got to me because I totally understand what she's feeling like. Ugh. Thanks for reading that, Connor. That's okay. Yeah, thank you for not making one of us read it. I agree to Leah, and I, we, I know we've talked about this ourselves. This is something that like I experienced for 12 years. That feeling of where she's like, I don't, I don't want this. I don't want it. And there's nothing I can do to stop it. So I'm just going to pretend like it's done. And I just want to point out that this is a common thing, um, that it's easier for us to go along with it and pretend and just act like we are done and yay, it's finished because that's faster and easier and less painful. And then on the flip side, non-men get this constant <clears throat> sexual stigma. There's like this, oh, women always have headaches and, and, and don't want to be involved. Or, oh, you're tired. Or, oh, you don't want this. Or, oh, you don't want that. But realistically, it's because we can't say no. And like that's exactly what was happening here, where she's saying she's tired. She can't say no because what's going to happen if she says no? Like she's not going to be okay. Like either at very least it's going to be emotional pain she's going to experience afterwards, if not something else. And this is something that I I would argue basically every non-man has probably done something like this. So yeah, this is that stupid trope about dead fish women or the stupid trope about, oh, women have headaches and never want to have sex or are always tired or whatever. This is literally what's happening. And this is why. And it's because women can't say no. And we have to find other ways to do it. And it is so common that it has become a whole fucking thing. It's, I'm sorry if like that got a little, um, obviously I have big feelings about it. Um, but uh, this is why, another reason why I felt so deeply about this book, because you know, this is somebody who she did love and it was still not something she wanted, even though she had wanted it before. This isn't something she wanted and she had no way to stop it from happening without suffering consequences. And that's that's a problem that is still existing today. And I don't know that it's even changed in its prevalence. Totally agree with you. Yes, it's like the descriptions of the sexual encounters, like very hurtful, very hard to read in the way that she has been raped. She doesn't want it. Like, it's not violent. It's not still not the way it's supposed to be. And I think there's a big point to do here and something to wonder about for me that is this book was written, what, 100 years ago? How did women experience sex in a different way than we do? Because even though we have, we do have, even though we have so much information, so much support uh, from society than they had, even though it's not enough, how did they handle this? Like, it was just like, 
let's just accept it. It was, I guess, it was not a topic. I'm completely blind in this topic. I, I was, I really wonder how how it was back then, and and maybe that's why it's written in this book. Like, ah, it's normal. So actually, I think that's an, a good time to mention that. It's conversations like this and stories like this that actually got Alexandra Kollontai removed from her position and completely ostracized from her point of power in the government because she was so interested in talking about how there were these problems with sex and these problems with the family. And these problems were that women were having this overbearing burden put on them. In fact, that's almost like her verbatim for um, communism in the family. Like she talks about there's this overwhelming burden placed on women. And that is even though Colin Tai has so many works and she was the first first woman member of the Bolshevik Central Committee. She was so prolific and like she was instrumental in starting International Women's Day. So prolific. But like it's so important that these conversations were had and she wanted to have these conversations to or with young people about how these are problems in our relationships right now and we need to change them and that is exactly the dynamic that got her ostracized so as marxist leninists as dialectical materialists i think it's important for us to recognize that this point right here her talking about this stuff was too much back then and most of the people that she wrote this book for never saw it so that is why it's really important for us to remember and pay attention to these things because she was trying to talk about these things 100 years ago, 91 years ago, <laughs> and uh, nothing has changed. Just going to add another point to this whole scene that really hit me emotionally is the part where she talks about the death of another dream, like that, that feeling of regret and sadness, I think is so telling because she, from my perspective, was looking forward to a rendezvous to say with someone who appreciated and valued her as a person, an individual for her intellect, but also the beautiful intimacy that they could have fostered holistically. And yet the moment that they get a time alone, she's immediately turned into a sexual commodity. And that is so heartbreaking. And like that hit me hard. Like she came there at very least, to be like, okay, well, we're friends. And she was instantly objectified. And, like, that's what he came there for, was to consume her. Yeah, he didn't even bother to book her, her own room. Just for the first night, he booked a double room for them. And then after that, he booked... And this was in some, like, shabby hotel. After that, he got them a better hotel, but they were in separate rooms so as to appear like they weren't together. So it was, like... I feel like it must have been very much planned what he was what he was doing. But at the same time, she wasn't consulted about it at all. I agree. And yeah, actually, this might be a good place to stop. Yeah, yeah that sounds perfect. getting to be like emotionally exhausting. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that to be honest, I'm a little <laughs> exhausted. Yeah. Uh, I also, it hurts. I, I know. It really yes, double would be nice. <laughs> this has been really good. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks, thanks everyone for joining this week. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Red Book Club. 
If you'd like to reach out to us or to stay posted for episode updates, you can find us on Twitter at rbcpod. Or you can visit our website at rbcpod.wordpress.com, where you can find our full episode list, along with resources such as ebook copies of the works that we're covering and more. If you'd like to join or support the book club, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash redbookclub, where you can gain access to our Discord server, where we meet every Sunday to discuss what we've been reading, and early access to our episodes. Thank you to the Craigbot for helping us to record, and to Keenan for our intro theme. And a special thanks to our patrons for supporting us in making this podcast. Join us next time for more from our series on works by Marxist feminists. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and solidarity forever. It's not me, it's you, it's you, it's you